Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 218. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, big thing was, I was going to do a meta show today. Tell you about everything that's gone and everything that's going to come in Starship Sova, but it hasn't worked out like that. It's just been hectic here, honestly. It's been, and I hope it is for you as well, I've had a blast of a time over Christmas, you know, and coming into the new year as well. And there just honestly hasn't been time for us to kind of sit down and, you know, work out what I, well, I know what I want to say, but I wanted to put it in like a little order so I don't kind of stumble over words like I normally do. And like I say... I just haven't honestly getting around to it, and now I'm back in the throes of work. And as it happens, my wife's got a bad back there, and that's just kind of complicated things. And there hasn't been a time, and you know, I'm trying to be the good husband there and run around and do everything, <laughs> failing miserably, totally. So, what I'm aiming for is maybe to try and do it for next week. But if not, you know what I mean. We'll just kind of carry on, and when I see a little slot in there, because I want to do it as quick as possible. So that is the the state of play, and like I say, I just hope everyone has had as good. A t- if you have had as like a good and a kind of festive time as what I've had in my family, you know, congratulations, you've had a wonderful time. It's just been magical. Do you know what I mean? We just love Christmas and all that kind of. It's the build up as well that we love. You know, this whole. I mean, we started in silly time in November, you know, with our decorations of anyone who's kind of been in touch with us or, you know, through Skype and video and everything like that in November. Says, Tony, is that your decorations up? <laughs> and literally it has. It's been, well, I'm probably talking 15th of November. As soon as kind of Guy Fawkes is out the way over here in England, decorations go up. And normally I kind of fight tooth and nail. But this time I've just kind of let it go and I've just loved it, to be quite honest. I've watched, we've done in all the kind of Christmas movies and everything. And then, you know, Christmas came and then that was it. Bang, bang, bang. We have just been out every night at Friends Round, you know. And if I look at another Volivant, you know, that kind of 
pastry food. Oh, I just had too much of it and far too much drink as well. And I've got some lovely bottles of lovely bottles of whiskey oh, of Christmas there, which I've actually broke into as well. So there you go. So, and we have, you know, I've, I've got JJ Campanella, man himself, sent over his science news. So, you know, I didn't want to kind of miss Jim out as well. So what I'll do is I'm going to hopefully next week get in the the kind of the meta show. If, if next week as well, we'll have another normal show, I bet. But hopefully we'll get will, and then we'll kick off as well, because I've got a, what we're doing is, got a great kind of big story by Cory Doctorow that's kind of kicking off as well and it's like a three-part The Martian Chronicles which just just is a fantastic story so we're going to hit that as well either next week or the week after depending on this meta show so let's kick in the day show and I'll tell you what's coming up we have fact like I say a fact article JJ Campanella's science news then we have the main fiction which is Paul DeFilippo's Femerville and you know the, the the best thing about this is it oh, great story as well by Paul, but it's it's narrated by Fred Heimbar, and Fred did this donks ago. You know, and it's been it's kind of one of my stories that I use for like a backup. And I've always got this story there, and I kind of, oh, there's another one. I put it in that one. I put it in that one. And it's not to be kind of you know not play it. It's just I like that. I always like to have a kind of backlog of stories so I can think right. If there's been a few like dry weeks where nothing comes in and nothing happens, I've got this reserve. But I, I thought, this is the time when I need to use my reserves because I haven't got anything coming in. It's a quiet period. You know, you can't expect people to to be working. But I do. Do you know what I mean? If you owe me stories, get them in. <laughs> so it's narrated by Fred Harnbar as well, which is just fantastic. And as you notice as well, we have cover art this week. Chris Butler has done an amazing little piece of work for Starship Silver. Chris did the Peter Watts story a while ago there and it's just a stunning bit of art that came in with that as well so chris has pulled out all the stops and chris thank you so much i will put a link on to chris's site do pop over there isoban and have a look at his work as well chris thank you so much so we'll kick off then with science news mr jj campanella on the last month of 2000, actually, God, we're only days away now from the last part of 2011. Jim. Greetings and felicitous Christmas solicitations, my excellent listeners. Welcome to this December 2011 Science News Update. I'm your host for this last science podcast of the year, Jim Campanella. Forgive me, I'm recovering from a cold. Before we get started with science stories, let me get a couple of listener comments out of the way that have to do with the science podcast itself. First, there have been a number of listeners who emailed me who were upset about some of the things that I said last month in November's podcast about science students. The listeners who emailed me did not identify themselves as science students, but from their ire toward my comments, I can only guess that they were taking my comments as personal insults. If you missed last month's podcast, you may want to listen, but to put it succinctly, I was talking about why U.S. math and science students fail, and I gave several hypotheses on why that may be and why the U.S. in general seems to be floundering right now in science, math, and engineering. I was described by those listeners who wrote to me with a number of colorful comments. Uh, The less colorful of those terms were pompous, arrogant, snide, condescending, and thoughtless. Probably the most colorful was pedantic ass clown, which I kind of like, by the way. It has a certain assonance to it. It's 
kind of poetic. I have a couple of responses, not defenses, responses to their emails. I never said that American science students are ignorant, dumb, or useless in any way. What I was trying to get across is that sometimes, no matter how smart a student is, they make the wrong choices and head in a direction for which they are simply not suited. Not everybody is a Rudy who will win out no matter what the circumstances. Rudy's are the exception, not the rule. I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I started my science career in college. It took me exactly one semester to realize that despite the fact that I had gotten A's in math all through high school, there was no way I would ever be good enough at serious math to go into physics. It takes a special mind to do that, one that I do not have. Does that mean that I'm an idiot because I had so much trouble with complex calculus? No. It simply means that I was not cut out for it. I did not have the proper aptitude. And what did I do about it? Did I insist that I was going to become a physicist no matter what? Did I take courses over and over again that I would be doomed to repeat? No. I got out of it and went into biology, another science which I enjoyed immensely and where my understanding of math and statistics was more than enough to get me by. That was the point I was trying to make. I have seen too many students who are simply not suited for science. Are they idiots and a waste of breathable atmosphere? No, they're simply not suited. I still insist that kids who are told they can be anything they want to be are being sold a load of baloney by grade schools. I cannot be a jockey because I am 100 pounds too heavy, no matter how much I like horses. I cannot be an NBA basketball player because I am about a foot too short. Yes, Harvard and Princeton are having the same problems as lowly state schools with students not being able to survive the sciences and win through with a degree. And this actually supports what I'm saying. This phenomenon has nothing to do with the intelligence of the students, because Ivy League students are among the smartest in the world. Given that truism, what we are seeing must have more to do with aptitude and whether they are suited to being scientists in today's world than anything else. And to you multiple American listeners who said that maybe professors like me are the problem and not them, here is a marvelous quote from Terry Pratchett. Quote, There is a significant difference between Europeans and Americans. A European says, I cannot understand this. What is wrong with me? While an American says, I cannot understand this. What is wrong with him? Unquote. I think you get my drift. Now, about my arrogance. In order to get to a point in academia where you survive to be a tenured professor in charge of a lab and doing your own research work, you have to have a certain amount of self-confidence. I know that I sound like I am preaching to you guys sometimes, but that attitude is something that has to be developed to survive in academia. If you say things in a hesitant or self-questioning manner, you should just give up the ghost, because you will never, ever be able to convince students let alone your colleagues, that what you are saying is true. And sadly, that is completely independent of the actual veracity of whatever the topic is. Enough of that. The other emails that I have gotten involve asking me why I do not do a year-end roundup of science like they do in popular science magazines. Here's the quick answer, because I don't like year-end roundups. Sorry if you really want a roundup, then go listen to my 11 other science podcasts from earlier in the year. They are all archived at uvulaaudio.com. 
I would much rather look ahead to new stuff than get bogged down doing a podcast that celebrates the old. Which brings us to the new stories. Yay! The first actual story involves sex. One of the big questions in biology has always been, why is there sex? What's the advantage of sex? There are plenty of organisms out there which do not have sex, and they reproduce without the mix of genetic information between two mates. Bacteria reproduce just fine by themselves. Algae, amoeba, fungi of all kinds, and they've done fine for millions of years. So why bother? Wouldn't it be better to have asexual females who just do all the work by themselves and don't need males? Doesn't mating take a lot of time and energy that could be better put to furthering survival for an organism, whether that organism be a plant or an animal? Well, the first response that you would get from most geneticists or evolutionary biologists is that sex is needed for gene shuffling in an organism. It provides a way of bringing in new DNA variants and creates genetic diversity. As I pointed out in previous podcasts, the key to genetic health is genetic diversity. As long as the DNA sequence in a population is varied, that helps ensure that the organism will survive when the environment around it changes. And it is not just the environment that populations have to contend with. Organisms need to be able to survive parasites that prey upon them. Whether those parasites be viral or bacterial or even more complex, like fungal parasites, as I told my microbial genetics class a couple of weeks ago, the entire history of hosts and parasites is a war in which both sides try to outdo the other to get a biological advantage. Connecting on this idea of trying to get an advantage to the process of sexual reproduction a few years ago, evolutionary biologists suggested something that they call the Red Queen Hypothesis. This hypothesis proposes that sex allows plants and animals to stay one step ahead in their endless arms race against co-evolving parasites. If you remember the advice that the Red Queen gave to Allison through the looking glass, she said that you had to keep running faster just to stay in one place. Here's the exact quote. Quote, now here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Unquote. Dr. Levy Moran and his colleagues at the University of Indiana have just published a paper in a recent issue of the journal Science that helps support the Red Queen hypothesis and its relation to the evolution of sex. The title of Moran's paper is Running with the Red Queen, Host-parasite coevolution selects for biparental sex. Moran set the nematode, the small worm, Xenorhabditis elegans, against its natural parasite, which is a bacterium called Serratia marcescens. Remember that we were saying, why bother having males? Well, C. elegans apparently took that to heart during evolution. Most C. elegans, about 80% of them, are hermaphrodites and they reproduce by self-fertilization. And only about 20% of the time will hermaphrodite worms reproduce by mating with rare males. Now here's the cool part. When Moran forced the wild-type worms to live constantly with their bacterial parasites for 30 worm generations, the rate of biparental breeding in the population increased from that low 20% to nearly 90%. In a control when the bacterial parasites infected mutant worms that couldn't mate at all with males, the worms were driven into extinction in 10 generations. So there you have it. Apparently sex, and lots of sex, somehow kept the worms alive, 
and the absence of sexual reproduction led to the doom of the little nematodes. They did some further experiments to see how the bacteria were affected. Because the bacteria and the worms both can be frozen and later reanimated, the team revived the original ancestral bacteria and host and compared them with their micro-evolved descendants. When Moran infected the original first-generation worms with the evolved parasites arisen from 30 generations of breeding, he saw that the evolved bacteria killed worms two to three times more effectively than their ancestors. However, when these newly evolved bacteria infected the 30th generation co-evolved worms, they were no more effective at killing them than the first generation parasites were at killing the first generation worms. What does that mean? Well, the take-home message is that while parasites evolved to become nastier, the worms simultaneously evolved to resist them, and both stayed pretty much where they were to begin with. And the outcome is exactly what the Red Queen hypothesis predicts. Both the parasite and the host have to keep running to stay in exactly the same place. So this is some serious evidence that males should not be gotten rid of quite yet. The advantages that males bring to the table do make their costs bearable. The presence of the males in the case of the worms allowed them to run slightly faster than the bacteria and so be able to survive. Next story. For a long time, geneticists have been trying to implant new genes in humans who are born with genetic abnormalities. The name for this process has been gene therapy, and it has been a long staple of speculative fiction. Gene therapy has been on the outs for the last decade for two reasons. The first reason is the technical one. To perform gene therapy so that it will have some effect on the ill patient, you need to be able to get the gene into their tissue or tissues and have that gene expressed in the long term so that the protein product produced is made at high enough concentrations and continuously to help the patient. Well, we have simply not been able to do that very well. A safe method of getting genes into tissues has not been available. The major method that has worked with mice has been to use retroviruses to carry DNA into the cells and then insert that DNA into chromosomes. Retroviruses, like herpes and HIV, do have the ability to insert DNA into genomes. There are a couple of problems with that approach, though. First, the DNA ends up being inserted randomly into the DNA, potentially creating mutations. The other problem is that using viruses like that, even disarmed viruses, can still cause some severe immune reactions. Which brings us to problem number two of gene therapy. Is it safe? In 1999, 18-year-old Jesse Gelsinger had a rare liver disease called ornithine transcarbamylase disorder. This is a liver disease that can be a serious problem in many people with a genetic deficiency, but Jesse was just fine with drugs and injections. He was very healthy. And despite the fact that Jesse would not benefit from gene therapy, he agreed to undergo the experimental procedure. He volunteered because the researchers at the University of Pennsylvania told him it would further science. Someday they told him the results might help cure sick babies, quote-unquote. He was told that it was safe and it would help the world. The researchers at Penn pumped him full of genetically altered viruses, and then like something out of a bad horror novel, things went wrong. Jesse's immune system reacted violently to the viral carriers used by the researchers. He reacted so violently, in fact, that he ended up going into immune system shock, and dying in September of 1999. 
It turned into a real-life horror show for Jesse's parents, and to make matters worse, the doctors who led the Penn State research had a financial interest in the company that funded it. That is a fundamental ethics violation in any kind of human clinical research. In 2003, gene therapy trials for severe combined immunodeficiency syndrome, or SCIDS, caused leukemia in three children. Remember that I said that retroviruses can insert themselves randomly into a chromosome? If you're a lab rat who's not expected to be long for this world anyway, that's fine. But if you're a human and a child, then it can cause a horrendous outcome. If a gene, such as a tumor suppressor gene, gets knocked out by an insertion like that, viral gene therapy may cause cancer. And it didn't, these children. Ten of the children suffering from the immunosuppression disease were basically cured in the French study. And at first, that was greeted with great excitement as a breakthrough in gene therapy. But of those three kids who later developed leukemia, one of them died. A 70% survival rate for a treatment that is supposed to be safe is not exactly fantastic. Most recently, in July 2007, a 36-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis died while participating in a gene therapy clinical trial. Some experts say that she shouldn't have received such an unpredictable, potentially dangerous treatment in the first place. Ms. Jolie Moore was married and the mother of a five-year-old daughter, and she was able to lead a full and active life with existing drugs keeping her disease under control. But she entered the experimental trials anyway, and again, she paid the ultimate price for that. These three stories point up why gene therapy has gotten such a bad name in recent years. But maybe that will change now. Genetic blood diseases are the perfect problems to benefit from gene therapy. You put in the gene for the protein that's lacking, and it gets circulated into the blood, and the person is cured. The December 10th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine reports one of the first serious breakthroughs in gene therapy in the last 20 years. Dr. John Tisdale of Johns Hopkins and his colleagues were able to transplant the missing gene products to hemophilia B patients that would save their lives. Hemophilia B is a common form of hemophilia where blood fails to clot properly. Anyone with this particular form of the disease must receive injections of a clotting compound called factor 9. Without the clotting compound, they bleed from cuts, scratches, bruises, or even internally. In the new study, four out of the six hemophilia patients experimentally given the gene therapy for the factor 9 clotting gene no longer need to receive the clotting compound injections any longer. The researchers treated six men ages 27 to 64 with gene therapy using a relatively harmless virus called cytomegalovirus. They coupled genetic components called promoters that induce liver cells to make the factor 9 protein into a special plasmid construct. Amazingly, each patient received a single infusion of the therapy, which they called serotype 8 pseudotyped self-complementary adenovirus-associated virus vector in the journal article. Because the researchers were worried about problems, such as they saw previously in studies like this, they have now monitored the men for 9 to 20 months. Four of the men who received medium or high doses of the genetic therapy have made enough factor 9 protein in their livers to stop needing exogenous injections of the protein. Two of the men on lower dosages of the treatment made a lot less of the factor 9 and still needed to get their exogenous injections, but they were able to cut back to one injection every 10 to 14 days after the treatment, which is still a major breakthrough. According to the authors, quote, the cytomegalovirus was chosen in part because it is unlikely that many people receiving it would have been exposed to it and already made antibodies against it. 
That means they were much less likely to have a really nasty immunological reaction, like the one that made Jesse Gelsinger so ill. The virus was also chosen because it specifically targets liver cells, which make factor 9. And although cytomegalovirus 8 enters a cell, it does not integrate with DNA material in the chromosomes. That sidesteps one of the biggest problems of the previous treatment, like the one that caused leukemia in those children, and it greatly reduces any risk that the therapy will interfere with normal cell function by random DNA insertion. The paper points out the one serious drawback with the procedure. It can be done only once with this virus. You cannot repeat the gene therapy with the virus because once a patient has been exposed to it, his immune system will recognize if he's exposed again. That means that the second dose of the cytomegalovirus type 8 will cause a massive immune reaction that could potentially lead to a lethal immune reaction like Jesse Gelsinger's. The author says this should not be a problem because they have dozens of other rare cytomegalovirus strains that have not been used and could be used for further treatment in the same person, although they haven't done that yet. One of the coolest results is that earlier experiments in large animals have shown that this process results in therapy that could last 10 years or longer after treatment. The authors say that further testing in people is planned, but these really are the most promising results for gene therapy in the last 20 years. This could be a real hope for lots of sick people out there. The next story of the evening is just a bit on the strange side. When I first read it, my immediate response was, what in the heck? I can't believe that a granting agency has spent money on this research. This is why the public screams about how useless and wasteful basic science research is. And then I discovered on further examination of the paper that the work was self-funded by a university researcher, and my ire was quelched. Quenched? No. So what is this unorthodox work? It is a physical and energetic analysis of backward human running. Yes, you heard that correctly. Dr. Giovanni Cavagna and collaborators at the University of Milano decided that the world needed to know why there is a greater step frequency and energy expenditure in backwards versus forward running in humans. His work was published this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Yes, there have been previous studies on this topic. Hence, it is known that it does take more energy and steps to run backwards than forwards. What was not known are the differences in the motion of the center of mass of the body associated with these findings on speed and steps. Cavagna measured the differences on nine trained runners during backwards and forwards running steps on a treadmill moving anywhere between 3 and 17 kilometers per hour. In contrast to previous reports, he found that the maximal upward acceleration of the center of mass and the aerial phase averaged over the whole speed range from 3 to 17 kph are greater in backward running than in forward running. Opposite to forward running, the impulse on the ground is directed more vertically during the push at the end of stance than during the break at the beginning of stance. The higher step frequency in backward running is explained by a greater mass-specific vertical stiffness of the bouncing system, he says, resulting in a shorter duration of the lower part of the vertical oscillation of the center of mass when the force is greater than body weight. That was all a quote, by the way. With a similar duration of the upper part of the body when the force is lower than body weight. Like a catapult, muscles and tendons are stretched more slowly during the breaking at the beginning of the stance, and they shorten more rapidly during the push at the end of the stance. Cavagna suggests that the catapult-like mechanism of backwards running, although it requires more energy usage and does not provide a smoother ride, may be useful. 
Running backwards may allow a safer stretch shorten cycle of muscles and tendons and may be good for athletes who are suffering muscle or joint injuries and still need to work out. It is a strange but interesting thought. My worry is that all these athletes running around fields backwards would simply be falling down or even falling over each other in their endeavors to recover. The next story has to do with snakes. Now, frankly, I do not know a lot about snakes. I do not know a lot about animals. I'm not a naturalist. By training, I'm a geneticist and a molecular biologist. That means I understand how DNA works in pretty much all animals and plants. However, that also means I have a limited knowledge base sometimes on a particular animal species and their anatomy and their physiology. This has been annoying sometimes when I'm asked a particular question by my kids about an animal which, frankly, I don't know a lot about. A couple of months back, my five-year-old daughter asked me how snakes hear when they don't have any ears. I hemmed and hawed and eventually told her they have very small pinhole-like ears that we just can't see. That was a guess. That was wrong. Snakes do not have ears open to the air like most mammals do. So my pinhole hypothesis was nothing more than that, and it was a wrong hypothesis. My daughter was closer to the truth than I was in this case, and that is a bit sobering. Coincidentally, in this month's Journal of Experimental Biology, Dr. Christian Christensen and his colleagues examine how snakes hear. Apparently, there has been quite a bit of controversy about this for years, which I didn't even know existed. Some scientists have proposed that snakes cannot hear because they have neither external ears or an eardrum. They have lost both of those in evolution and now have only an inner ear attached to a single middle ear bone. In short, They do not have any of the apparatus that can sense vibrations in the air. So do they even hear has been the question for decades. Dr. Christensen hypothesized that one way that snakes might actually be able to detect pressure waves in the air, that is sound, is if they detect sound through sound-induced mechanical vibrations through their bodies. That is, the sound is detected by their bones and or body and then transmitted to their ears. Christensen played sounds ranging in pitch from 80 to 1,000 hertz at volumes between 50 and 110 decibels for royal pythons. He then recorded electrical responses in the snake's cranial nerves and their brain stems. He then increased the volume of the stimulus until he recorded a measurable electrical signal in the brain stem, and he found that snakes could hear very loud airborne sounds. The sounds had to be about 10,000 times louder than the softest sounds that can be heard by humans. The pythons were also most sensitive to low frequencies between 80 to 160 hertz, and their sensitivity decreased at higher frequencies. So Christensen found pretty strong evidence that snakes can hear. His next task was to determine how the snakes could hear even loud sounds. How did that sound get to the snake's vibration-sensitive inner ear? As low-frequency sounds are efficiently carried by solid materials, the group hypothesized that sound vibrations could be transmitted from the ground into the snake's body where it was then detected. Christensen measured vibrations generated on the surface upon which the snakes were lying on a loudspeaker suspended above a platform. Again, he recorded the electrical responses to the vibrations. And he found that the animals responded well to 80 hertz vibrations, but they could only detect the low-frequency sounds, which carried well through the substrate, and not the high-frequency sounds. So his final question was, how were snakes able to sense higher-pitched sounds? Christensen said, quote, We humans can hear by bone conduction in water, 
that could be another way of sending sound, unquote. So the researchers decided to test whether animals can sense their own skulls vibrating in response to sound. They attached very sensitive vibration meters to the snake's head and measured the mechanical vibrations induced in the head by loud airborne sounds that were just above the snake's hearing thresholds. Christensen found that indeed these skull vibrations were the same intensity as the minimal mechanical vibrations that the animals could sense. So instead of responding to sound pressure, the snakes responded to vibrations transmitted directly from the air to their skeletons. Okay, so that's how a snake hears. And it's very cool. And it fills in a gap in my knowledge pretty nicely. I suppose I had better go back to my daughter and clarify the whole issue. The last story of the night is about cans of food and bisphenol A. I am frankly getting sick of these monthly BPA updates. I have moved from being very concerned to annoyed and terrified. I cannot believe that we as humans have allowed manufacturers of just about everything that we eat and come into contact with to pollute our environment. You may have heard this latest one, but let me fill you in on the new horror if you haven't heard about the newest source of BPA in our diets. Dr. Gregory Noonan and his collaborators from the FDA just published a paper in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. This was about a month ago. And the paper shows very strong evidence that BPA is present in high quantities in metal canned foods. BPA, you may remember, is a nasty compound that mimics estrogen and is a component in most plastics. Noonan and his group found BPA tainting 71 of 78 canned goods they sampled from a grocery store. That is slightly more than 90%. They also tested frozen green beans and peas that had been sold in plastic bags as a control. As expected, neither of the frozen vegetables contained BPA. Presumably, the BPA contamination of the can comes from leaching from the plastic can liner, not from the metal of the cans themselves. The lowest concentration of BPA in canned food, which was 2.6 parts per billion, occurred in canned peas, although I suspect it had nothing to do with it being peas. It just happened to be that can that was the lowest. The contamination of green beans varied by 30-fold in different cans, with the highest being 730 parts per billion. Pasta, pork and beans, chili, soup, and fruit varied less, typically hosting BPA at levels between 10 and 80 parts per billion. The contamination had nothing to do with whether it was a store brand or a name brand either. Also, canned organic foods seem to be just as contaminated. What does all this variation imply? Well, the paper states, quote, there are few clear trends to the data, unquote. Noonan also adds, quote, Owing to the broad variation in concentrations witnessed here in the U.S., comparing BPA data from overseas products to U.S. foods is not overly informative, unquote. Even just over-the-border comparisons apparently can be challenging. Canadian canned tuna hosted 9 to more than 500 parts per billion BPA, well in excess of the 4.5 to 17 parts per billion in U.S. tuna. These differences can most likely be traced to different coatings used between the U.S. and Canada. And the data from the paper show that BPA concentrations tend to be tenfold higher in the actual canned food than in any liquid like water in which it had been packaged in the can. So yes, this may be the only place where you will be told that the heavy syrup is probably more healthy than the peaches. Here's the take-home message. Buy fresh food. 
Cook fresh food. Avoid canned foods until we are told that the liners are BPA-free. Simple as that. I suspect that you are probably as sick of these stories as I am. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Don't get rid of your mails just yet. They may be worth something. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say? You know, like throughout 2000, with God throughout since we started, Starship's over, you've been there. What a, a treat that's been as well for everyone. Thank you so much, Jim, for honestly, I mean this, you know what I mean? I kind of appreciate so much what you do for Starship's over. Thank you, you know, umpteenth time. Thank you very, very much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it's by Paul DeFilippo. Paul has been kind of, he, he's done a number of stories for Starship Sofa, and you know, what he is like, I, I, I like Paul DeFilippo because he is like a kind of, to the left of kind of story writing, a bit of a kind of wacky story writer, you know, and I guess his main is a, a short story writer. I'll put a link on just to, to go over, the, I tried to find a link for Paul's site, but for some reason it's not coming up. So I've got a, a a link on to go and have a look at these steampunk trilogy over there at Amazon, and then you could from there you could kind of spread out and find some more work by Paul de Filippo. Like you see, he's done a number of stories on Starship. So his last one was God Pod, which was a great, great idea. That's that's you know that's the quirky things I like with short stories that you can do. And like I say, this guy Paul de Filippo can just dig into that seam there, that rich seam of ideas, and put in a short story. And it's narrated by our graphic fan man, Fred Heimbaugh. Fred, again, what can I say? You've been on Starship. God, you've been there, Fred. I think since day one. Do you know what I mean? I remember getting Fred. Fred said, we'll let out. You know, this is when me and Kieran kicked off. And you're talking probably the first or the second show, there was a letter from Fred. And there you go. All this time later, there's Fred still there. Do you know what I mean, Fred? What a, you know what I mean? I wish I could just give him a big bear hug. Thank you very much, sir. So the Starship Soba is very proud to present Femerville by Paul de Filippo. Preface Common wisdom has it that a beginning writer seeks to emulate his literary favorites. Only by so doing can he or she ultimately achieve a unique voice. While this observation is certainly demonstrably true, it is also false, insofar as it seems to imply that there comes a point where a mature writer no longer has any models uppermost in his mind when starting a new story. Each writer is supposed to be a nonpareil, guided only by his unexampled vision. If so, then I am far from a mature writer, for I often choose to be inspired by the writers whose work I admire, deliberately modeling a story on what I perceive to be their style and virtues and concerns. Heck, that's what my entire collection entitled Lost Pages is all about. Like an evangelical wearing a what-would-Jesus-do wristband, I don and remove similar invisible wristbands all the time. What would Pynchon do? What would Faulkner do? What would Heinlein do? And so on. Anyway, aside from the obvious inspirations to be found in the Hurricane Katrina New Orleans disaster, the impetus for this story stems from wanting to emulate or borrow the admirable mind of Lucius Shepard. 
as I once titled a review of Lucius's work, The Shepherd is My Lord. Femaville 29 by Paul de Filippo La Palma is a tiny moat in the Canary Islands, a moat that had certainly never intruded into my awareness before one fateful day. On La Palma, five hundred billion tons of rock, in the form of an unstable coastal plateau, awaited a nudge, which they received when the Cumbre Vieja volcano erupted. Into the sea, a good portion of the plateau plunged, a frightful hammer of the gods. The peeling off of the face of the island was a smaller magnitude event than had been feared, but it was a larger magnitude event than anyone was prepared for. The resulting tsunami raced across the Atlantic. My city had gotten just twelve hours' warning. The surreal chaos of the partial evacuation was like living through the most vivid nightmare or disaster film imaginable. Still, the efforts of the authorities and volunteers and good Samaritans ensured that hundreds of thousands of people escaped with their lives, leaving other hundreds of thousands to face the wave. Their only recourse was to find the tallest, strongest buildings and huddle. I was on the seventh floor of an insurance company when the wave arrived. Posters in the reception area informed me that I was in good hands. I had a view of the harbor a half a mile away. The tsunami looked like a liquid mountain mounted on a rocket sled. When the wave hit, the building shuddered and bellowed like a steer in an abattoir euthanized with a nail gun. Every window popped out of its frame, and spray lashed even my level. But the real fight for survival had not yet begun. The next several days were a sleepless blur of crawling from the wreckage and helping others to do likewise. But not everyone was on the same side. Looters arose like some old biological paradigm of spontaneous generation from the muck. Their presence demanded mine on the front lines. I was a cop. I had arrested several bad guys without any need for excessive force, but then came a shootout at a jewelry store where the display cases were incongruously draped with drying kelp. I ended up taking the perps down okay, but the firefight left my weary brain and trembling gut hypersensitive to any threat. Some indeterminate time afterwards, marked by a succession of candy bar meals, digging under the floodlights powered by chuffing generators, and endless slogging through slime streets. I was working my way through the upper floors of an apartment complex, looking for survivors. I shut off my flashlight when I saw a glow around the corner. Someone stepped between me and the light source, casting a shadow of a man with a gun. I yelled, Police! Drop it! then crouched and dashed toward the gunman. The figure stepped forward, still holding the weapon, and I fired. The boy was twelve, his weapon a water pistol. His mother trailed him by a few feet, not far enough to escape getting splattered with her son's blood. Later I learned that neither of them spoke a word of English. One minute I was cradling the boy, and the next I was lying on a cot in a field hospital. Three days had gotten lost somewhere, 
three days in which the whole world had learned of my mistake. They let me get up the next day, ostensibly healthy and sane enough, even though my pistol hand, my left, still exhibited a bad tremor. I tried to report to the police command, but found that I had earned a temporary medical discharge. Any legal fallout from my actions awaited an end to the crisis. I tried being a civilian volunteer for another day or two amidst the ruins, but my heart wasn't in it. So I took the offer of evacuation to Femaville 29. The first week after the disaster actually manifested aspects of an odd enforced vacation, or rather, the atmosphere often felt more like an open-ended New Year's Eve, the portal to some as yet unidentified millennium where all our good resolutions would come to pass. Once we victims emerged from the shock of losing everything we owned, including our shared identity as citizens of a large East Coast city, my fellow refugees and I began to exhibit a near-manic optimism in the face of the massive slate-cleaning the uplift was not to last. But while it prevailed, it was as if some secret imperative in the depth of our souls, a wish to be unburdened of all our draggy paths, had been fulfilled by cosmic fiat, without our having to lift a finger. We had been given a chance to start all over, remake our lives afresh, and we were, for the most part, eager to grasp the offered personal remodeling. Everyone in the swiftly erected encampment of a thousand men, women, and children was healthy. The truly injured had all been airlifted to hospitals around the state and nation. Families had been reunited, even down to pets. The tents we were inhabiting were spacious, weather-tight, and wired for electricity and entertainment. Meals were plentiful, albeit uninspired, served promptly in three shifts, thrice daily, in a large communal pavilion. True, the lavatories and showers were also communal, and the lack of privacy graded a bit right from the start. Trudging through the chilly dark in the middle of the night to take a leak held limited appeal, even when you were pretending you were camping, and winter, with its more challenging conditions, loomed only a few months away. Moreover, enforced idleness chafed those of us who were used to steady work. Lack of proper schooling for the scores of kids in the camp worried many parents. But taken all in all, the atmosphere at the camp, christened with no more imaginative bureaucratic name than Femaville Number 29, was suffused with potential that first week. My own interview with the FEMA intake authorities in the first days of the relocation was typical. The late September sunlight warmed the interview tent so much that the canvas sides had to be rolled up to admit fresh air scented with the faint, not unpleasant maritime odors of decay. Even though Femaville 29 was located far inland, or what used to be far inland before the tsunami, the rack left behind by the disaster lay not many miles away. For a moment I pictured exotic fish swimming through the streets and subways of my old city, weaving their paths among cars, couches, and corpses. The imagery unsettled me, and I tried to focus on the more hopeful present. The long tent hosted ranks of paired folding chairs, each chair facing its mate. The FEMA workers, armed with laptop computers, occupied one seat of each pair, while an interviewee sat in the other. 
the subdued mass interrogation and the clicking of keys raised a surprisingly dense net of sound that overlaid the noises from outside the tent. Children roistering, adults gossiping, birds chattering. Outside the tent, multiple lines of refugees stretched away, awaiting their turns. The official seated across from me was a pretty young African-American woman whose name badge proclaimed her Hannah Laws. Unfortunately, she reminded me of my ex-wife, Kelly, hard in the same places Kelly was hard. I tried to suppress an immediate dislike of her. As soon as I sat down, Hannah Laws expressed rote sympathy for my plight, a commiseration worn featureless by its hundredth repetition. Then she got down to business. Name? Parish Hedges. Any relatives in the disaster zone? No, ma'am. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What was your job back in the city? I felt my face heat up, but I had no choice except to answer truthfully. I was a police officer, ma'am. That answer gave Hannah Laws pause. Finally, she asked in an accusatory fashion, Shouldn't you still be on duty then, helping with the security and the ruins? My left hand started to quiver a bit, but I suppressed it so I didn't think she noticed. Medical exemption, ma'am. Hannah Laws frowned slightly and said, I hope you don't mind if I take a moment to confirm that, Mr. Hedges. Her slim, manicured fingers danced over her keyboard, dragging my data down the airwaves. I studied the plywood floor of the tent while she read my file. When I looked up, her face had gone disdainful. This explains much, Mr. Hedges. Can we move on, please? As if I ever could. Hannah Laws resumed her program spiel. All right, let's talk about your options now. For the next few minutes, she outlined the various programs and handouts and incentives 
that the government and private charities and NGOs had lined up for the victims of the disaster. Somehow, none of the choices really matched my dreams and expectations, engendered by the all-consuming catastrophe. All of them involved relocating to some other part of the country, leaving behind the shattered chaos of the East Coast, and that was something I just wasn't ready for yet, inevitable as such a move was. And besides, choosing any one particular path would have meant foregoing all the others. Leaving this indeterminate interzone of infinite possibility would lock me into a new life that might be better than my old one, but would still be fixed, crystallized, frozen into place. Do I have to decide right now? No, no, of course not. I stood up to go, and Hannah Laws added, But you realize, naturally, that this camp was never intended as a long-term residence. It's only transitional, and will be closed down at some point not too far in the future. Yeah, sure, I said. We're all just passing through. I get it. I left then, and made way for the next person waiting in line. The tents of Femaville 29 were arranged along five main dirt avenues, each as wide as a city boulevard. Expressing the same ingenuity that had dubbed our whole encampment, the avenues were labeled A, B, C, D, and E. Every three tents, a numbered cross street occurred. The tents of one avenue backed up against the tents of the adjacent avenue, so that a cross block was two tents wide. The land where Femaville 29 was pitched was flat and treeless and covered in newly mowed weeds and grasses. Beyond the borders of our village stretched a mix of forests, scrubby fields, and swamp, eventually giving way to rolling hills. The nearest real town was about ten miles away, and there was no regular transportation there other than by foot. I walked up to Avenue D toward my tent, D-30, I encountered dozens of my fellow refugees who were finished with the intake process. Only two days had passed since the majority of us had been ferried here in commandeered school buses. People, the adults anyhow, were still busy exchanging their stories, thrilling, horrific, or mundane, about how they had escaped the tsunami or dealt with the aftermath. I didn't have any interest in repeating my tale, so I didn't join in in any such conversations. As for the children, they seemed mostly to have flexibly put behind them all the trauma they must have witnessed. Reveling in their present freedom from boring routine, they raced up and down the avenues in squealing packs. Already the seasonally withered grass of the avenues was becoming dusty ruts. Just days old, this temporary village, I could feel, was already beginning to lose its freshness and ambience of novelty. Under the unseasonably worn sun, I began to sweat. A cold beer would have tasted good right now, but the rules of FEMA 29 prohibited alcohol. I reached my tent and went inside. My randomly assigned roommate lay on his bunk. Given how the disaster had shattered and stirred the neighborhoods of the city, it was amazing that I actually knew the fellow from before. I had encountered no one else yet in the camp who was familiar to me. And out of all my old friends and acquaintances and co-workers, 
Ethan Duplessis would have been my last choice to be reunited with. Ethan was a fat, bristled slob with a long criminal record of petty theft, fraud, and advanced mopery. His personal grooming habits were so atrocious that he had emerged from the disaster more or less the same condition he entered it, unlike the rest of the survivors who had gone from well-groomed to uncommonly bedraggled and smelly. Ethan and I had crossed paths often, and I had locked him up more times than I could count. When the tsunami struck, he had been amazingly free of outstanding charges. But the new circumstances of our lives, including Ethan's knowledge of how I had retired from the force, placed us now on a different footing. Hey, Hedges, how'd it go? They got you a new job yet? Maybe security guard at the kindergarten? I didn't bother replying, but just flopped down on my bunk. Ethan chuckled meanly at his own paltry wit for a while, but when I didn't respond, he eventually fell silent, his attentions taken up by a tattered copy of Maxim. I closed my eyes and drowsed for a while, until I got hungry. Then I got up and went to the refectory. That day they were serving hamburgers and fries for the third day in a row. Mickey D's seemed to have gotten a lock on the contract to supply the camp. I took mine to an empty table. Head bowed, halfway through my meal, I sensed someone standing beside me. The woman's curly black hair descended to her shoulders in a tumbled mass. Her face resembled a cameo in its alabaster fineness. Mind if I sit here? she said. Sure. I mean, go for it. The simple but primordial movements of her legs swinging over the bench seat and her ass settling down awakened emotions in me that had been absent since Callie's abrupt leave-taking. Nia Horsley used to live out over at Garden Parkway. Nice district. Norted a surprisingly enjoyable sound. Yeah, once. I never got over there much. Worked in East Grove. Had an apartment on Oakenshot. And what would the name on your doorbell have been? Oh, sorry. Parish Hedges. Pleased to meet you, Parish. We shook hands. Hers was small but strong, and shelled in mine like a pearl. For the next two hours, through two more shifts of diners coming and going, we talked, exchanging condensed life stories, right up to the day of the disaster and down to our arrival at Femaville 29. Maybe the accounts were edited for maximum appeal, but I intuitively felt she and I were being honest nonetheless. When the refectory workers finally shooed us out in order to clean up for supper, I felt as if I had known Nia for two weeks, two months, two years. She must have felt the same. As we strolled away down Avenue B, she held my hand. I don't have a roomie in my tent. Oh? It's just me and my daughter. Luck of the draw, I guess. I like kids. Never had any, but I like them. Her name's Izzy, short for Isabel. You'll get to meet her, but maybe not just yet. How come? She's made lots of new friends. They stay out all day, playing on the edge of the camp. Some kind of weird new game they invented. We could go check up on her, and I could say hello. Nia squeezed my hand. Maybe not right this minute.
I got to meet Izzy the day after Nia and I slept together. I suppose I could have hung around till Izzy came home for supper, but the intimacy with Nia, after such a desert of personal isolation, left me feeling a little disoriented and pressured, so I made a polite excuse for my departure, which Nia accepted with good grace, and arranged to meet mother and daughter for breakfast. Izzy bounced into the refectory ahead of her mother. She was seven or eight, long-limbed and fair-haired, in contrast to her mother's compact, raven-haired paleness, but sharing Nia's high-cheeked bone structure, I conjectured backward to a gangly, blonde father. The little girl zeroed in on me somehow, out of the whole busy dining hall, racing up to where I sat, only to slam on the brakes with alarming precipitousness. "'Here, Mr. Hedges,' she informed me, and the world. "'Yes, I am, and you're Izzy.' I was ready to shake her hand in a formal adult manner, but then she exclaimed, "'You made my mom all smiley!' and launched herself into my awkward embrace. Before I could really respond, she was gone, heading for the self-service cereal line. I looked at Nia, who was grinning. "'And this?' I asked. "'Is her baseline?' "'Precisely. When she's really excited.' I'll wear one of those padded suits we use for training the K-9 squad. Nia's expression altered to one of seriousness and sympathy, and I instantly knew what was coming. I cringed inside, if not where it showed. She sat down next to me and put a hand on my arm. Parrish, I'll admit I did a little googling on you after we split yesterday over at the online tent. I know about why you aren't a cop anymore, and I just want to say that... Before she could finish, Izzy materialized out of nowhere, bearing a tray holding two bowls of technicolor puffs swimming in chocolate milk, and slipped herself between us slick as a greased eel. They're almost out of food. You better hurry. With a plastic knife, Izzy began slicing a peeled banana into chunks thick as Oreos that plopped with alarming splashes into her bowls. I stood up gratefully. I'll get us something, Nia. Eggs and bacon and toast, okay? She gave me a look, which said that she could wait to talk. Sure. During breakfast, Nia and I mostly listened to Izzy's chatter. And then Vonique's all like... But the way I remember it is that the towers were next to the harbor, not near the zoo. And Eddie goes, nah, they were right where the park started. And then they couldn't agree, and they were going to start a fight until I figured out that they were talking about two different places. Vonique meant the goblin towers, and Eddie meant the towers of bone. So I straightened them out, and now the map of Jamala is like almost half done. That's wonderful, honey. It's a real skill being a peacemaker like that. Izzy cocked her head and regarded me quizzically. But that's just what I've always been forever. In the next instant, she was up, kissing her mother, then out the hall, and raising puffs of dust as she ran toward where I could see other kids seemingly waiting for her. Nia and I spent the morning wandering around the camp, talking about anything and everything except my ancient recent disgrace. 
We watched a pickup soccer game for an hour or so, the players expending the bottled energy that would have gone to work and home before the disaster, then ended up back at her tent around three. Today was as warm as yesterday, and we raised a pretty good sweat. Nia dropped off to sleep right after, but I couldn't. Eleven days after the flood, and it was all I could dream about. Ethan was really starting to get on my nerves. He had seen me hanging out with Nia and Izzy and used the new knowledge to taunt me. What's up with you and the little girl, Hedges? Thinking of keeping your hand in with some target practice? I stood quivering over his bunk before I even realized I had moved. My fists were bunched at my hips, ready to strike. But both Ethan and I knew I wouldn't. The penalty for fighting at any of the FEMA bills was instant expulsion and an end to government charity. I couldn't risk losing Nia now that I had found her, even if we managed to stay in touch while apart. Who was to say that the fluid milieu of the post-disaster environment would not conspire to supplant our relationship with another? So I stalked out and went to see Hannah Laws. One complex of tents hosted the bureaucrats. Laws sat at a folding table with her omnipresent laptop. Hooked to a printer, the machine was churning out travel vouchers branded with official glyphs of authenticity. Mr. Hedges, what can I do for you? Have you decided to take up one of the host offerings? There's a farming community in Nebraska. I shook my head in the negative. Trying to imagine myself relocated to the prairies was so disorienting that I almost forgot why I had come here. Hannah Laws seemed disappointed by my refusal of her proposal, but realistic about the odds I would have accepted. I can't say I'm surprised. Not many people are leaping at what I can offer. I've only gotten three takers so far, and I can't figure out why. They're all generous, sensible births. Yeah, sure, that's the problem. What do you mean? No one wants sensible after what they've been through. We all want to be reborn as phoenixes, not dray horses. That's all that would justify our sufferings. Hannah Laws said nothing for a moment, and only the minor whine of the printer filigreed the bubble of silence around us. When she spoke, her voice was utterly neutral. You could die here before you achieve that dream, Mr. Hedges. Now, how can I help you if not with a permanent relocation? If I arrange different living quarters with the consent of everyone involved, is there any regulation stopping me from switching tents? No, not at all. Good, I'll be back. I tracked down Nia and found her using a piece of exercise equipment donated by a local gym. She hopped off and hugged me. Have to do something about my weight. I'm not used to all this lolling around. Nia had been a waitress back in the city, physically active eight or more hours daily. My own routines, at least since Callie left me, had involved more couch potato time than mountain climbing, and the sloth of camp life sat easier on me. We hugged, her body sweaty in my arms, and I explained my problem. I realize we haven't known each other very long, Nia, but do you think... I'd like it if you moved in with Izzy and me, Parrish. 
One thing the tsunami taught us. Life's too short to dither, and I'd feel safer. No one's been bothering you, have they? No, but there's just too many weird noises out there in the country. Every time a branch creaks, I think someone's climbing my steps. I hugged her again, harder, in wordless thanks. We both went back to Laws and arranged the new tenth assignments. When I went to collect my few possessions, Ethan sneered at me. Knew you'd run, Hedges, without your badge and nothing! As I left, I wondered what I had been, even with my badge. Living with Nia and Izzy, I naturally became more involved in the young girl's activities. And that's when I learned about Jamala. By the end of the second week in Femaville 29, the atmosphere had begun to sour. The false exuberance engendered by sheer survival amidst so much death and the accompanying sense of newly opened horizons had dissipated. In place of these emotions came anami, irritability, anger, despair, and a host of other negative feelings. The immutable, unchanging confines of the unfenced camp assumed the proportions of a stalag. The food, objectively unchanged in quality or quantity, met with disgust, simply because we had no control over its creation. The shared privies assumed a stink no amount of bleach could dispel. Mere conversation and gossip had paled, replaced with disproportionate arguments over inconsequentials. Sports gave way to various games of chance, played with the odd pair of dice or deck of cards, with bets denominated in sex or clothing or desserts. One or two serious fights resulted in the promised expulsions, and, chastened but surly, combatants restrained themselves to shoving matches and catcalls. A few refugees, eager for stimulation and a sense of normality, made the long trek into town and found themselves returned courtesy of local police cars. The bureaucrats managing the camp, Hannah Laws and her peers, were not immune to the shifting psychic tenor of Femaville 29. From models of optimism and can-do effectiveness, the officials began to slide into terse, minimalist responses. I don't know what more we can do, Hannah Laws told me. If our best efforts to reintegrate everyone as functioning and productive members of society are not appreciated, then... She left the consequences unstated, merely shaking her head ruefully at our ingratitude and sloth. The one exception to this general malaise were the children. Out of a thousand people in Femaville 29, approximately 200 were children younger than 12, although sometimes their numbers seemed larger as they raced through the camp's streets and avenues in boisterous packs. Seemingly unaffected by the unease and dissatisfaction exhibited by their guardians and parents, the kids continued to enjoy their pastoral interlude. School, curfews, piano lessons, all shed in a return to a pre-lapsarian existence as hunter-gatherers of the 21st century. When they weren't involved in traditional games, they massed on the outskirts of the camp for an utterly novel undertaking. There, I discovered, they were building a new city to replace the one they had lost, or perhaps simply mapping one that had already existed. And Izzy Horsley, I soon learned, with actually very little surprise, 
was one of the prime movers of this jovial juvenile enterprise. With no tools other than their feet and hands, the children had cleared a space almost as big as a football field of all vegetation, leaving behind a dusty canvas on which to construct their representation of an imaginary city. Three weeks into its construction, the map cum model had assumed impressive dimensions despite the rudimentary nature of its materials. I came for the first time to the site one afternoon when I grew tired of continuously keeping Nia company in the exercise tent. Her own angst about ensuring the best future for herself and loved ones had manifested as an obsession with keeping fit that I couldn't force myself to share. With my mind drifting, a sudden curiosity about where Izzy was spending so much of her time stole over me, and I ambled over to investigate. Past the ultimate tents, I came to what could have been a construction site reimagined for the underage cast of Sesame Street. The youngest children were busy assembling stockpiles of stones and twigs and leaves. The stones were quarried from the immediate vicinity, emerging still wet with loam, while sticks and leaves came from a nearby copse in long, disorderly caravans. Older children were engaged in two different kinds of tasks. One chore involved using long-pointed sticks to gouge lines in the dirt, lines that plainly mark streets, natural features, and the outlines of buildings. The second second of workers were elaborating these outlines with the organic materials from the stockpiles. The map was mostly flat, but occasionally a structure, teepee, or cairn rose up a few inches. The last, smallest subset of workers were the architects, the designers, engineers, imagineers of the city. They stood off to one side, consulting, arguing, issuing orders, and sometimes venturing right into the map to correct the placement of lines or ornamentation. Izzy was one of these elite. Deep in discussion with a corn-rowed black girl and a pudgy white boy wearing smudged glasses, Izzy failed to note my approach, and so I was able to overhear their talk. Izzy was holding forth at the moment. Sprinkle Hall covers two whole blocks, not just one. Come on, you gotta remember that. Remember when we went there for a concert, and after we wanted to go around back to the door where the musicians were coming out, and how long it took us to get there? The black girl frowned, then said, Yeah, right, we had to walk like forever. But if Sprinkle Hall goes from Cleverly Street all the way to Cush Lane, then how does Pine Martin Avenue run without a break? The fat boy spoke with assurance. It's the Rendondo Tunnel. Goes under Sprankle Hall. Izzy and the black girl grinned broadly. Of course! I remember when that was built! I must have made some noise then, for the children finally noticed me. Izzy rushed over and gave me a quick embrace. Hey, Parrish! What you doing here? I came to see what was keeping you guys so busy. What's going on here? Izzy's voice expressed no adult embarrassment, doubt, irony, or blasé dismissal of a temporary time-killing project. We're building a city! Jamala! It's someplace wonderful! The black girl nodded solemnly. I recalled the name Vonique from Izzy's earlier conversation, and the name seemed suddenly inextricably linked to this child. Well, said Vonique, it will be wonderful once we finish it. But right now it's still a mess. This city 
Jamala? How did it come to be? Who invented it? Nobody invented it, Izzy exclaimed. It's always been there. We just couldn't remember it until the wave. The boy, Eddie, said, That's right, sir. The tsunami made it rise up. Rise up? Out of the waters? Like Atlantis? A new continent? Eddie pushed his glasses further up his nose. Not out of the ocean. Out of our minds. My expression must have betrayed disbelief. Izzy grabbed one of my hands with both of hers. Parish, please! This is really important for everyone. You gotta believe in Jamala, really! Well, I don't know if I can believe in it the same way you kids can, but what if I promise just not to disbelieve yet? Would that be good enough? Vonique puffed air past her lips in a semi-contemptuous manner. Huh, I suppose that's as good as we're going to get from anyone until we can show them something they can't ignore. Izzy gazed up at me with imploring eyes. Perish! You're not going to let us down, are you? What could I say? No, no, of course not. If I can watch and learn, maybe I can start to understand. Izzy, Vonique, and Eddie had to confer with several other pint-sized architects before they could grant me observer status, but eventually they did confer that honor on me. So for the next several days, I spent most of my time with the children as they constructed their imaginary metropolis. At first, I was convinced that the whole process was merely some over-elaborated coping strategy for dealing with the disaster that had upended their young lives. But at the end of the week, I was not so certain. So long as I did not get in the way of the construction, I was allowed to venture down the outlined H.O. scale streets, given a tour of the city's extensive features and history by whatever young engineer was least in demand at the moment. The story of Jamala's ancient founding, its history and contemporary life, struck me as remarkably coherent and consistent at the time, although I did not pay as much attention as I should have to the information. I theorized, then, that the children were merely resorting a thousand borrowed bits and pieces from television, films, and video games. Now, I can barely recall a few salient details. The crypt of the Thousand Martyrs, the Blue Point Aerial Tramway, Penton Park, Wickle Reed Slough, Midwinter Festival, the Squid Club, these proper names, delivered in the pure piping voices of Izzy and her peers, are all that remain to me. I wish I could get an aerial perspective on the diagram of Jamala. It seemed impossibly refined and balanced to have been plotted out solely from a ground-level perspective. Like the South American drawings at Nazca, its complex lineaments seemed to demand a superior view from some impossible, more-than-mortal vantage point— after a week spent observing the children, a week during which a light evening rain shower did much damage to Jamala, damage which the children industriously and cheerfully began repairing, a curious visual hallucination overtook me. Late afternoon, sunlight slanted across the map of Jamala as the children began to tidy up in preparation for quitting. Sitting on a borrowed folding chair, I watched their small forms, dusted in gold, move along eccentric paths. My mind commenced to drift amidst worldless regions. The burden of my own body seemed to fall away, 
At that moment, the city of Jamala began to assume a ghostly reality, translucent buildings rearing skyward, ghostly minarets, stadia, pylons. I jumped up, heart thumping to escape my chest, frightened to my core. Memory of a rubbish-filled, clammy, partially illuminated hallway and the shadow of a gunman pierced me. My senses had betrayed me fatally once before. How could I ever fully trust them again? Jamala vanished then, and I was relieved. A herd of government-drafted school buses materialized one Thursday on the outskirts of Femaville 29, on the opposite side of the camp from Jamala, squatting like empty-eyed yellow elephants, and I knew that the end of the encampment was imminent. But exactly how soon would we be expelled to more permanent quarters not of our choosing? I went to see Hannah Laws. I tracked down the social worker in the kitchen of the camp. She was efficiently taking inventory of cases of canned goods. Ms. Laws, can I talk to you? A small, hard smile quickened one corner of her lips. Mr. Hedges, have you had a sudden revelation about your future? Yes, in a way. Those buses are not scheduled for immediate use. FEMA believes in proper advanced staging of resources. But when? Who can say? I assure you that I don't personally make such command decisions, but I will pass along any new directives as soon as I am permitted. Unsatisfied, I left her tallying creamed corn and green beans. Everyone in the camp, of course, had seen the buses, and speculation about the fate of Femaville 29 was rampant. Were we to be dispersed to public housing in various host cities? Was the camp to be merged with others into a larger concentration of refugees for economy of scale? Maybe we'd all be put to work restoring our mortally wounded drowned city. Every possibility looked equally likely. I expected Nia's anxiety to be keyed up by the threat of disillusion of our hard-won small share of stability, this island of improvised family life we had forged. But instead, she surprised me by expressing complete confidence in the future. I can't worry about what's coming, Parrish. We're together now, with a roof over our heads, and that's all that counts. Besides, just lately I've gotten a good feeling about the days ahead. Based on what? Nia shrugged with a smile. Who knows? The children, however, Izzy included, were not quite as sanguine as Nia. The coming of the buses had goaded them into greater activity. No longer did they divide the day into periods of conventional playtime and construction of the City of Dreams. Instead, they labored at the construction full-time. The ant-like trains of bearers ferried vaster quantities of sticks and leaves, practically denuding the nearby copse. The grubbers up of pebbles broke their nails uncomplainingly in the soil. The scribers of lines plowed empty square footage into the new districts like the most rapacious of suburban developers. The ornamentation crew thatched and laid mosaics furiously and the elite squad overseeing all the activities wore themselves out, like military strategists overseeing an invasion. What do we build today? The docks at Kanukadin. But we haven't even put down the Mokambo River yet. Then do the river first. 
but we have to fill in the great northeastern range before tomorrow. What about Gopher Gulch? That'll be next. Befriending some kitchen help secured me access to surplus cartons of prepackaged treats. I took to bringing the snacks to the hard-working children, and they seemed to appreciate it, although truthfully they spared little enough attention to me or any other adult, lost in their make-believe, laboring blank-eyed or with feverish intensity. The increased activity naturally attracted the notice of the adults. Many heretofore oblivious parents showed up at last to see what their kids were doing. The consensus was that such behavior, while a little weird, was generally harmless enough, and actually positive, insofar as it kept the children from boredom and any concomitant pestering of parents. After a few days of intermittent parental visits, the site was generally clear of adults once more. One exception to this rule was Ethan Duplessix. At first, I believed, he began hanging around Jamala solely because he saw me there. Peeved by how I had escaped his taunts, he looked for some new angle from which to attack me, relishing the helplessness of his old nemesis. But as I continued to ignore the slobby criminal slacker, failing to give him any satisfaction, his frustrated focus turned naturally to what the children were actually doing. My lack of standing as any kind of legal guardian to anyone except, at even the wildest stretch of the term, Izzy, meant that I could not prevent the children from talking to him. They answered Ethan's questions respectfully and completely at first, and I could see interest building in his self-serving brain as he rotated the facts this way and that, seeking some advantage for himself. But then the children grew tired of his gawking and cut him off. We have too much work to do. You've got to go now. Please, Mr. Duplessis, just leave us alone. I watched Ethan's expression change from greedy curiosity to anger. He actually threatened the children. You damn kids! You need to share, or else someone else will just take what you've got. I was surprised at the fervor of Ethan's interest in Jamala. Maybe something about the dream project had actually touched a decent, imaginative part of his soul, but whatever the case, his threats gave me a valid excuse to hustle him off. You can't keep me away, Hedges. I'll be back. Izzy stood by my side, watching Ethan's retreat. Don't worry about him, I said. I'm not worried, Parrish. Jamal can protect itself. The sleeping arrangements in the tent Nia, Izzy, and I shared involved a hanging blanket down the middle of the tent to give both Izzy and us adults some privacy. Nia and I had pushed two cots together on our side and lashed them together to make a double bed. But even with a folded blanket atop a wooden bar down the middle of the makeshift bed, I woke up several times a night as I instinctively tried to snuggle Nia and encountered the hard obstacle. Nia, smaller, slept fine on her side of the double cots. The night after the incident with Ethan, I woke up as usual in the small hours of the morning. Something urged me to get up. I left the cot and stepped around the hanging barrier to check on Izzy. Her cot was empty, only blankets holding a ghostly imprint of her small form. I was just on the point of mounting a general alarm when she slipped back into the tent, clad in pajamas and dew-wet sneakers. My presence startled her, but she quickly recovered and smiled guiltlessly.
bathroom call? I whispered. Izzy never lied. No, just checking on Jamala. It's safe now. Today we finished the Iron Grotto, just in time. That's good. Back to sleep now. Ethan Duplessis had never missed a meal in his life, but the morning after Izzy's nocturnal inspection of Jamala, he was nowhere to be seen at any of the three breakfast shifts. Likewise for lunch. When he failed to show at supper, I went to D-30. Ethan's sparse possessions remained behind, but the man himself was not there. I reported his absence to Hannah Laws. "'Please don't concern yourself unnecessarily, Mr. Hedges. I'm sure Mr. Duplessis will turn up soon. He probably spent the night in intimate circumstances with someone.' "'Ethan? I didn't realize the camp boasted any female trolls.' "'Now, now, Mr. Hedges, that's most ungenerous of you.' Ethan did not surface the next day or the day after that, and was eventually marked a runaway. The third week of October brought the dreaded announcement, lulled by the gentle autumnal weather, the unvarying routines of the camp, and by the lack of any foreshadowings, the citizens of Femaville 29 were completely unprepared for the impact. A general order to assemble outside the buses greeted every diner at breakfast. Shortly before noon, a thousand refugees, clad in their donated coats and sweaters and jackets, shuffled their feet on the field that doubled as a parking lot, breath pluming in the October chill. The ranks of buses remained as before, save for one unwelcome difference. The motors of the buses were all idling, drivers behind their steering wheels. The bureaucrats had assembled on a small raised platform. I saw Hannah Laws in the front, holding a loud hailer. Her booming voice assailed us. It's time now for your relocation. You've had a fair and lawful amount of time to choose your destination, but have failed to take advantage of this opportunity. Now your government has done it for you. Please board the buses in an orderly fashion. Your possessions will follow later. Where are we going? Someone called out. Imperious, Hannah Law answered. You'll find out when you arrive. Indignation and confusion bloomed in the crowd. A contradictory babble began to mount heavenward. Hannah Law said nothing more immediately. I assumed she was waiting for the chaotic reaction to burn itself out, leaving the refugees sheepishly ready to obey. But she hadn't counted on the children intervening. A mass juvenile shriek brought silence in its wake. There was nothing wrong with the children gathered on the edges of the crowd, as evidenced by their nervous smiles but their tactic had certainly succeeded in drawing everyone's attention. Izzy was up front of her peers, and she shouted now, her young voice proud and confident. Follow us! We've made a new home for everyone! The children turned as one and began trotting away toward Jamala. For a frozen moment, none of the adults made a move. Then a man and a woman, Vonique's parents, set out after the children. Their departure catalyzed a mad general desperate rush toward a great impossible unknown that could only be better than the certainty offered by FEMA. Nia had been standing by my side, but she was swept away. I caught a last glimpse of her smiling, shining face as she looked back for a moment over her shoulder. Then the crowd carried her off. I found myself hesitating. How could I face the inevitable crushing disappointment of the children, myself, and everyone else when their desperate hopes were met by a metropolis of sticks and stones and pebbles? 
Being there when it happened, seeing all the hurt, crestfallen faces at the instant they were forced to acknowledge defeat, would be sheer torture. Why not just wait here for their predestined return, when they could pretend the mass insanity had never happened, mount the buses and roll off, chastised and broken, to whatever average future was being offered us? Hannah Laws had sidled up to me, loud hailer held by her side. I'm glad to see at least one sensible person here, Mr. Hedges. Congratulations for being a realist. Her words, her barely concealed glee and schadenfreude, instantly flipped a switch inside me from off to on, and I sped after my fellow refugees. Halfway through the encampment, I glanced up to see Jamala looming ahead. The splendors I had seen in ghostly fashion weeks ago were now magnified and re-complicated across acres of space. A city woven of childish imagination stretched impossibly to the horizon and beyond, its towers and monuments sparkling in the sun. I left the last tents behind me in time to see the final stragglers entering the streets of Jamala. I heard water splash from fountains, shoes tapping on shale sidewalks, laughter echoing down the white boulevards, and at the same time I could see only a memory of myself in a ruined building, gun in hand, confronting a shadow assassin. Which was reality? I faltered to a stop. Jamala vanished in a blink, and I fell insensible to the ground. I awoke in the tent that served as the infirmary for Femaville 29. Hannah Laws was sitting by my bedside. Feeling better, Mr. Hedges? You nearly disrupted the exodus. What? What do you mean? Your fellow refugees. They've all been bussed to the next station in line. I sat up on my cot. What are you trying to tell me? Didn't you see the city, Jamala? Didn't you see it materialize when the children built it? Didn't you see all the refugees flood in? Hannah Law's cocoa skin drained of vitality as she sought to master what were evidently strong emotions in conflict. What I saw doesn't matter, Mr. Hedges. It's what the government has determined to have happened that matters. And the government has marked all you fellow refugees from FEMA 29 as settled elsewhere in the normal fashion. Case closed. Only you remain behind to be dealt with. Your fate is separate from theirs now. You certainly won't be seeing any of your temporary neighbors again for some time, if ever. I recalled the spires and lakes, the pavilions and theaters of Jamala. I pictured Ethan Duplessis rattling the bars of the Iron Grotto. I was sure he'd reform and be set free eventually. I pictured Nia and Izzy swanning about in festive apartments, happy and safe, with Izzy enjoying the fruits of her labors. And myself, the lame child left behind by the Pied Piper. No, I replied, I don't suppose I will see them again soon. Hannah Law smiled at my acceptance of her dictates, but only for a moment until I spoke again. But then, you can never be sure.
And as we say, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Paul the Villabos. There you go. So that is the last show of 2011. We're on the eve of the very next year, 2012. Actually, in tomorrow, I think it is tomorrow. Yes, the 30th. This is my wedding anniversary. There, there you go. That's another reason why I could have run around. Because I actually forgot. Yes, I forget every year. I forget, man. But someone someone came up in a conversation about five days ago. And it was just like, oh! Bloody hell. So I've been running around sorting, sorting, <laughs> wedding anniversary out. And we went out again last night. That's another reason we went out last night to celebrate that with friends and a little bit drunk. And like, seeing how my wife's bad and bad with a sore back. Oh, terrible. So until next week, if it will be the meta show or if it'll be a normal show, who knows? But, you know, please thank you, everyone. Do you know what I mean? For, Sticking with the Starships over and getting over, you know, coming through 2011. Do you know, it, it, it's, it just goes over so quick. You know, it was 2010 when we won the award, the Hugo Award. You know, I'm kind of still catching up with that year. And all of a sudden, this one's flew past us as well. So, you know, like I say, I'm going to talk a lot about this in one of ones to get to the, the kind of meta show. But again, thank you so much for, you know, sticking with us and everybody. And there's a couple of people out there. You know, there's one individual out there as well who's kind of been a godsend to Starship. So I don't want to go any further than that. Just has helped so much. You know what I mean? It's become a nice friend to me as well as well, email. And it's lovely to kind of just sometimes offload. So, you know, what can I say? You've all been so magical. Thank you so much. Until the new year, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. For the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.